For those of you who remain, both here and on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We continue our series looking at verses 5 through 9. We saw last week, Christ is a superior prophet. Consider this week, he is a superior king. Next week, we will consider how he is a superior priest and how he fulfills all of those offices for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, this is God's word. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. It has been testified elsewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would abound to us with your kindness and grace. And make your word clear to us, Lord. We confess our confusion because we do not see everything in subjection to you. And it seems all too often, Lord, as if everything comes unhinged. But we know from your word that you rule over everything. So give us eyes to see our Lord Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we might delight in him even when it seems as if the whole world has gone astray. Give us that confidence to know that he is king yet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are we to say to people when they are overwhelmed with a sense of their own frailty in a broken world, when it it feels like God is absent? And for a long time, I thought that coming to Christ meant now having hold of the truth, knowing from him all the things that that are unshakable, the way we are called to live, the way we are called to worship, the way we are called to be, that, that coming to Christ would bring order and structure and comfort and happiness and joy to my chaotic life. But I confess that more often than not, it just feels more overwhelming than it ever has. Knowing that that God says he's the king, but looking out and not always seeing the evidence of it. What are we to say to people who feel that deeply? When the things of this world just come unhinged and their own sense of frailty overwhelms them. When it feels like God is so far away and our cries just bounce off the ceiling. Came to the news Saturday to find another war raging in the Middle East. 
There are people awaiting diagnoses. And when you get them, sometimes it feels like like the, the bottom falls out. We experience just a gridlock in this world where it seems like we can never quite get ahead of all the things that just weigh us down. There are loved ones who are falling to addiction, to poverty. We can't, we can't even control inflation, and it feels like every time you go to the store, things just cost more, and you're looking at what you have, and you're looking at what you need. And the two don't line up. And there are so many things that we could point to that unsettle us. Make us wonder. What is the reassurance that we as Christians have? What is it that we can offer when we ourselves can't always shake the feeling that God is far away? One pastor commenting on this passage made this point, that our our Christian existence is conditioned not by the absence of God. Our Christian existence is not conditioned by the absence of God, but by his presence. Which is to say that the the heart of the Christian faith isn't about rules to follow so that you can have the good and happy life. The the heart of the Christian faith isn't about uh, a, a certain feeling that we're supposed to have and be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time because we have Jesus. The heart of the Christian faith is knowing that because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have the privilege, we have the ability, we have the joy of drawing near to God and experiencing his presence even when everything around us would have us believe he is far away. The heart of the Christian faith, our very Christian existence, is conditioned by the presence of God. That's what this passage is teaching. And so we're going to consider how to work that out in our lives by asking three questions and trying our best to answer them. The first is this, why, why then does it feel like God is far away? If our Christian existence is conditioned by his presence and not his absence, why then does it so often feel like he's far away? And what does it mean for us that God is present? What does it mean for the world that God is present? Those are the three things we're going to wrestle with this morning. And the first I invite you to consider with me is this question. Why then does it feel as if God is far away? doesn't take a Bible scholar to, to, to find verses that call the Christian to rejoice in the Lord, to magnify his name, to delight in his word, to, to be blessed and happy and joyful. It doesn't, that's not how the Christian life feels all the time. Why? Well, the scriptures call us certainly to rejoice in the Lord, but they testify to the fact that we live in a world 
that you could describe as in a state of sin and misery. You've heard me use that phrase before. It's not new to me. Others coined it. Theologians of old, they looked out at this world. These great scholars and pastors and leaders and theologians who knew the scriptures and knew the doctrines and knew their God, and they looked out at this world and they weren't fooled. This is an estate of sin and misery. And there are moments where there is brightness and life, but there is something deeply broken about it. That's why you can't can't ever seem to keep good things. I mean, even the antibiotics. We love our antibiotics, maybe a little too much. Because after a while, they stop working. You get get to a good place and, and something else happens. You get this ordered and structured and you're taking care of it and this falls off the shelf. Like it just seems like this world is made to make us miserable. It's interesting that the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. It is a a psalm that is a a poetic restatement of the the Genesis creation account. It it points us to what the world was made to be. what, What men and women were made to be. Crowned with glory and honor. With everything put in subjection to us. This creation mandate to go out into the world and to to have dominion over the creatures of the birds of the air, the beasts of the field and the fish and everything and to, to, to work and cultivate this world so that the, the garden of Eden would cover the face of it. And you can't read this excerpt from Psalm 8 and not come to grips with just how Woefully, we have failed to live up to that. How God, who created this world very good, made men and women in his image and gifted them with his blessing to go out into the world and to to live for him and for his glory and how we chose not to listen to our God to the adversary, to the devil, and to pursue our own wants and dreams, to think to ourselves that we could become like God, we could do it our way, and maybe even better. And Psalm 8 becomes for us condemnation. At how far we have fallen and how much we have failed to live up to what God has called us to be. But it's not just condemnation. There is in Psalm 8 a glorious word of hope that God did not make the world to be in a state of sin and misery. That God looks out at this world and his verdict is this is not how it is supposed to be. He has better designs for this world than what we have brought about. The alienation that we feel absence of God that we experience in this world is not so much because God is absent, 
but because we have gone our own way. Because we have sinned against God and against one another. And when we feel this alienation, when we feel this misery, when we experience the sinfulness of this estate, it is an opportunity for us to rest in the hope of this verdict from God. It's not supposed to be like this. So where do you feel it? Where do you feel this misery? Where do you sense this alienation? And where do you need God's verdict to say loud and to clear, this is not how it ought to be? Maybe you feel it in your family with fractured relationships, with difficult children or frustrating parents or a spouse that you can't seem to connect with no matter how hard you try. Maybe you feel it in your own body as you live out the trauma that you have experienced recently or many, many years ago, and you just can't seem to get to a place where you're free from that. Where a word or a song can just remind you and shake you, bringing back all of those nightmarish memories. Maybe You experience it at work where it seems like no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to to make things work. You can't get the recognition that you want. It seems like the harder you try, the more thorns and thistles rise up. Sometimes I wonder if we even really allow ourselves to feel the alienation and the misery of the sinful estate. We live in a culture that doesn't want to lean into that, that doesn't want to accept that, that doesn't want to admit this is broken and not how it's supposed to be. And we find all sorts of creative ways to numb ourselves to that reality. Through food or drink or sex or song or whatever, we just close our eyes and put our fingers in our ears to it and, and just sing, la, 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 I'm happy, 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 and I'm comfortable, and I don't want to actually lean into the reality of the misery of my life. We just numb ourselves to it. Where does this alienation hit you hardest? Where does it feel like for you that God, God himself, is just so, so far away. The author of the book of Hebrews would tell us, this is what we see. We see a world that testifies that it's not right with God. But that's not how it is. And that's not how it's going to be. Because we also find in this passage that our God isn't absent 
He's present. It's interesting that he begins verse 5. That, that it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. What a strange transition. I've read over it a hundred times if I've done it once. And it struck me this week. Why would that even be a concern? Maybe, maybe the, the readers, the, these original hearers of this message found themselves in such deep suffering. Maybe God seemed so far away to them that the way they, they sought comfort was to say, well, of course God seems far away. He's big. He's important. He's God. Why should he bother himself with us? He sends his angels to do things. He's got better things to concern himself with. So if we want to see change, if we want to see our situation better, let's concern ourselves with figuring out how we can can connect with these angels so that they can get this world right. And maybe we think the same. God God doesn't have time to bother with me, so I I need to bring order and structure to my world. Or I need somebody else who's going to come and do it. Or I need a little bit more money so I can pay for it. Or I need this or I need that. And we start to fall into the same trap that these original hearers were in. That if God is so far away, maybe there's something else that we need to be clinging to. But the author tells us it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. This new age that's dawning. Because this is something that's precious to him. And if something is truly and deeply and powerfully precious to you, you you don't just hand it off to anybody. You don't just take your newborn that the hospital has the good sense to put the little, you know, widget on their ankle so you can't just walk out of the hospital with them. You don't just take your newborn and Toss them on the chair and hope somebody else takes care of them. They're precious to you. And even if they're in the NICU, you're there. You, you don't, you're not waiting for somebody else to come and be present with that your own child who's suffering. And things are precious to you. You don't hand them off to someone else. I've seen some of you musicians with those very, very nice and very, very expensive instruments Not, you wouldn't even leave it in in my office, locked or in the car. You you carry them with you wherever you go. These things are precious to you. You don't trust anybody else with them. This psalm, Psalm 8, tells us that this world that God has made, which he made very good, and the people that he made to fill it are so precious to him. He's not willing to turn them over to angels. He himself comes. How strange that this this author would quote Psalm 8. That is, as I've already told you, a poetic restatement of the Genesis creation account. And he would say, Psalm 8, that's not talking about Adam. That's talking about Jesus. Because Adam, Adam brought shame and dishonor to this world. But Christ, Christ has brought glory and honor. He has defeated death and he is exalted to the highest place. And he is now at work subjecting every evil power under his foot. He's brought honor and glory 
just like the psalm declares. He's crowned with it. Adam, Adam lost everything. Everything is crippled and broken because of what Adam and Eve did. Even the, the, the dust of the earth just doesn't produce much, but thorns and thistles. Our very work is crippled because of their decision. Christ, Christ receives everything. And it is brought into subjection to him that he might rule over it in righteousness and in goodness and in truth. There's nothing outside of his control. But everything is brought into subjection to him. Adam destroyed everything because it's through Adam that death entered into this world. But we read here that Christ, Christ tasted death so that we might experience the grace of God to bring everlasting life. But that, that we might be made new creations. The old might be cast aside, that the new might rise up. Christ is the subject of Psalm 8, because it's not just talking about Genesis. It is talking about what Jesus is doing right now in his people, making them new. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Not because of just what you did in the past, but because of what you're doing right now. Now, in your people. And so the the writer says, we don't see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it. It doesn't always make sense. The brokenness of this world is still altogether too evident for us. But, But do you know what we do see? We see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely Jesus. But now is crowned with glory and honor. We see him in the word. We see him in the gospel that's announced that he endured suffering and death on our behalf so that we might experience the the grace of a God. Not to be pushed far from him, but to be brought near, to know him, to delight in him. And when we see Christ, when we see him for who he is, when we see him and understand that he is that great king of kings and lord of lords, even when the world around us is chaos, when we see Jesus who conquered death, it can decrease our dread. It can decrease our anxiety. It can decrease our fear. It can decrease our misery, because we know. Not only is it true that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, this isn't the way it will continue either, because he is bringing everything under subjection to himself. And he's doing it for our sake, because we who are made in his image are precious to him. So precious that he would die in our place. Where is it that you need to see Christ 
more clearly. Where you need the the reality of who he is and what he's doing in this world and in you. Where do you need to see that afresh and anew? I mean, maybe it's in the very same place where you are experiencing that alienation. And you need to be reminded that God is not far from you, but he is near and he is at work. But sometimes, sometimes he shows up in the most unexpected of places, like in Psalm 8. It's not about Adam as much as it is about Christ. And he shows up and he turns our attention away from those very things that seem to be undermining us and tearing us down and bringing us nothing but misery and dread. And he, and he shows up in a new place to turn our attention away from those things, not because they don't matter, not because they're not important, but because the most important thing we need to know and see and experience and behold is the glory of our Lord who appears to us and for us, who draws us near that we might know the comfort of his presence. Where? Do you need that today? What Hebrews 2 tells you, he is there. Turn your eyes to him and see him who just for a little while was made lower than the angels, who for a little while suffered, who for a little while endured the cross, but now is crowned with glory and honor and he rules over all things for you. That you might be made new. What would it mean if we believed this? What would it mean for the world if God is truly present in this way. You know, it's important for us to wrestle with this question. Like, why don't we see more impact? If Jesus is ruling and reigning, if he is bringing all of his enemies under the subjection of his rule and reign, and he's making them a footstool for his feet, like, why isn't it always more obvious? Why does inhumanity seem to just reign? Why do we seem to just tear ourselves apart? Some of us think about God, uh, like the, the legends of King Arthur, where it was said that he would dress himself up as a commoner and, and walk around the countryside to see what his kingdom was really going through, what his reign really looked like for the, the common man. And, and we think that God is doing that and he's walking around and inspecting things and one day we're going to hear about it. And there's something to that, I suppose. But I think what Hebrews 2 tells us is that God is much more like what C.S. Lewis pictures in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Where... It's the coldness and the harshness and the bitterness of a hundred years of winter where it is always winter and never Christmas. All of that begins to crack and melt and thaw when Aslan appears. So when God's presence comes to bear, when he shows up, 
it begins to melt those evil influences. It begins to bring renewal and thaw even in this estate of sin and misery. This is what it means, in effect, where it says that that Jesus tasted death. I mean, the sense of the word here isn't that he just took a sip. I wonder, I wonder, every time I've tried kombucha, I'm just like, yep, there, there's a reason I only take a sip of that. God bless you if it's your thing. I prefer my coffee. The sense here is that he experienced in his fullness. He drank it to the dregs. Like there's nothing left of death now that Jesus has tasted it to the fullness. For all those who are in Christ, for all of those who are called by his name, for all those who enjoy the, 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 the honor of his rule and reign, he has drained the power of death to the dregs so that there's nothing left for us but to go through it into everlasting life. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's pleasant. But what it does mean is that he's the king. And not even death, not even death can thwart his rule and his reign for his people. And if he can lead you through that suffering, if he can lead you through that pain, there is nothing he cannot equip you to endure until that day where we see him face to face. And as he does that work in you, as the cold and bitterness of your heart begins to thaw, as he does that work in us, his people, and the the power of his rule and reign starts to become manifest in our lives where we begin to to recognize what it means for us to follow after him in everything, in all of our relationships, in all of our responsibilities. When we begin to see that, we become like a, a, a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, a light to a dark world that there is yet a king and he rules and he reigns and he is bringing his will to bear on earth even as it is in heaven. He begins that work in us and he wants to see it spread. And he calls us to bear witness to his kingship so that others who don't see how God could possibly be near if the world is like this might receive testimony, might hear and understand and believe and and see Christ who reigns. How can we live that out? How, How can we as a church, bear witness to Christ's work of restoration, not just in us, but for the whole world. We can live out in in community with one another where, where we aren't just gathering 
a bunch of individuals together to do a certain thing and then we leave and scatter about, but that we come together and, and to grow into what it means for us to be a community defined not by my expectations or your expectations or my desires or your desires, but by the kingship of Christ. We can learn humility and love and patience as we receive those very things from our God who bears so patiently and lovingly with us, we can start to live those out in our own relationships and how we treat one another so that we show the world there is a better way than just ripping everyone and everything apart. Maybe we could even begin to grow in our disdain for worldly power. So we begin to behold the divine power of our God and live out of that. Wilkes and I have been watching Band of Brothers. I'm late to getting to that, but uh, follows the 101st Airborne. And and a lot of it is about everything that follows D-Day. And how we didn't end the war by Christmas. It kept going and going and going. And yet, there was something indispensable about that beachhead at Normandy. If we hadn't won that, we would not have won anything. And there's a sense in which once that beachhead was established, it was Maybe not by Christmas, maybe not by New Year's, but it was only a matter of time before the war was won. The church ought to be the beachhead for God's, the manifestation of God's rule and reign on this earth. Where where we show forth his victory over sin and death where we learn what it means to follow after him, even in the misery of this estate, because we know and share his verdict. This is not how it's supposed to be. And this isn't how it's going to be. And so we're going to live for that everlasting kingdom. We are that beachhead. The war is won. And all that God calls us to is to live out of his grace to live out his rule and reign that others might see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. May we live as those who know his presence, know that he's not far, know that our God reigns. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us this. There's so much out in this world, O Lord, that would shake us that frustrates us, that makes you seem far. Remind us afresh and anew, O God, of the power of your presence, of the joy of your presence, of the truth of your kingship, that everything is in subjection under you. There's nothing outside of your control, not even death. That we might live not by faith in our power, but in yours, that we might indeed be that that light, that city on a hill, that beachhead for your kingdom 
in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.